0: Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we scour the depths of franchise cinema, discussing both the treasures and horrors that we find. I'm one of your hosts, Corey.
1: And I'm your other host, Liam. This
0: week we will be discussing the 1990 horror film The Exorcist 3 a movie that I did not know existed and... Was very surprised to learn about seeing as it comes so late compared to the original movie. Uh, For anybody who doesn't know, The Exorcist 3 is the second directorial effort of William Peter Blatty, (laughs) who is –
1: what (laughs) – I thought you're gonna say for anyone who doesn't know, The Exorcist 3 is the second installment in the Exorcist.
0: <laughs> I mean, it basically is, and we'll get to that. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it's the it's the second directorial effort of William Peter Blatty, who is the author of the books that the movies are based on, um, which I thought was interesting. He also wrote the screenplay, and uh, that was actually adapted into a novel, and then the movie got made after. Um, it stars George C. Scott. Brad Dourif, and Ed Flanders, among others. And it's attached to a franchise which really needs no introduction. Um, You're going to know what The Exorcist is, right? Like, it's an iconic classic piece of horror cinema. And I guess the place to start before we dive into the second Exorcist movie, The Exorcist 3, would be to ask you, Liam, what your experience with the original movie is and the series as a whole.
1: Well, I've played that uh, Scary Maze game that, that existed on Flash sites in the early 2000s. You remember that one?
0: Um, I remember something like this, where you had to yeah, like, yeah. find a red dot on the screen.
1: Yeah, you go for the red yeah, dot, yeah, yeah. and then on the third level, uh, what people would often call the Exorcist face jumps out at you. That's the which fourth
0: is... movie in the franchise. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's found footage. It all <laughs> takes place on a computer screen. It's really It's a crossover. Edge. It's it's in the unfriended uh, universe, yeah. you're doing a Cloverfield sort of thing. That's the <laughs> twist. Um, no, my well, honestly, I guess my understanding of the series doesn't go much beyond that image because while I have seen the first film, I saw it on TV when I was very young. Um, all that stuck with me is um, that face, the infamous crab walk down the stairs, which isn't even in the original cut i've since learned so it might not have even it might not have even been in the version i watched on tv to be honest with you um but when i think of the exorcist i just think of uh watching the movie and um no you know what scratch that dude i don't even think about watching the movie i just I've seen the movie but all I think about is how familiar with how familiar I've become with the the more famous scenes and images of the movie since watching it so I can't it's not even a movie where I can distinguish this is what it was like when I saw it for the first time you know Um, yeah you know because I just I think of the movie and I can see Regan in her bedroom looking scary as hell and um, I remember revisiting the scenes a lot on youtube as a kid like 2008 youtube i would watch scenes from the movie um on the internet because i just thought they were super fascinating i would watch the crab walk over and over and um then i revisited scenes from it again uh a couple years ago on youtube again and i was just like yeah this is this is just as scary as i remember it but I, i haven't seen the movie since whatever that first time was, and since it was so long ago, um, I would barely even say I've seen the movie. To be honest, if I were to watch it again, I would I would basically consider that a first time watch. I have no familiarity with the second Exorcist movie. I know neither does this movie. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, nothing about it at all. And um, just to catch you up on what I what I knew about this movie going in, um, I knew. That I had heard from uh, people in the horror community, um, you know, message boards and, and Twitter that I, the space that I inhabit there, I had heard in passing that it was a well-regarded sequel um, and I had got it into my head that there was at least one in fact there was specifically one iconic scare in the movie i didn't know what it was and i had no i didn't know where i learned this information but i just i thought of exorcist 3 and the connection in my mind was surprisingly good and has a scary shot in it and i didn't know how true those things were i didn't do any research before we checked it out i just something in my mind there is a little flicker where i kind of thought that might be the case um and even if that wasn't the case i would just think oh i guess i had it confused with another movie so i wasn't entirely sure but after watching the movie i i think i had the right movie in mind and uh that's it that's that's my life <laughs>
0: That's, that's everything, folks. You know everything about Liam that you would need to know. Um, for me, perhaps much to our mutual shame as people who act like film buffs, uh, I haven't seen The Exorcist either. Um,
1: I've seen... <laughs> and the... you're talking all this big game at the beginning, like, you guys know what The Exorcist is. We I mean, need I, no I, I am deeply familiar with it.
0: I've never yeah. seen it. It's one of those things like you're saying that you can kind of just get through cultural osmosis at this point, um, which isn't to say that I don't have any interest in seeking it out. If anything, after seeing The Exorcist 3, I have even more of a desire that I already had to go seek out the first one. But mm-hmm. like you're saying, I sort of know about it through iconic moments more than an actual cohesive thing. And as such, a lot of the the detail gets kind of lost. I didn't know that this movie had a lot of the same characters that the first movie has, big and small, and that there were all of these really intimate tie-ins. That was stuff that I learned later when I did a bit of reading about the movie. So for me, um, being unfamiliar with the first one, I found that this still worked really well on its own, and we can get into that. But what we should point out is that... There is an Exorcist 2. Um, it is called the Exorcist 2 the heretic and it has nothing to do with this movie. This movie ignores it completely. It doesn't share a lot of the other characters except for Reagan. and it's regarded, mm, well, that's important And it's regarded as being absolutely terrible. Uh, Hmm. and red letter media did a bit on that on a best of the worst episode, I believe. Uh, that's where I remember getting most of my detail about this movie from, and yeah, it looks pretty bad. Um, there's a point where James Earl Jones, I think spits out like a cherry tomato out of his mouth and then like turns into a tiger.
1: That sounds exactly like the kind of movie you would love, man.
0: See, you'd think, but, you know, it wasn't really gripping me in the same way. (laughs) But, yeah, Yeah. so I guess I'm shocked that because a lot like 2010, the year we make contact, it's attached to this classic, iconic piece of genre cinema. But in that case, we were both familiar with it. I'm surprised that we're not as familiar with this one, especially seeing as this seems like it would be so up your street, like as the horror resident horror guy. That right. I'm, really, I'm shocked that this isn't something that we, as a collective here, have a better grasp on, but I think that kind of makes the potential for what we do with this conversation without the burden of that legacy a little bit more exciting.
1: Yeah, I think it is um, totally a hidden gem. Obviously, there are some people singing its praises because I wouldn't have heard of it in the first place otherwise, but... Um, you're right, so many people perceive the Exorcist as a standalone film um, because it's it's not like a slasher franchise right it didn't it didn't go on to have countless sequels so we don't know it as the movie that that was good and then spawned a bunch of terrible sequels um, and but because that initial sequel didn't have legs at all <clears throat> and that sort of cut out the bottom from it uh, being seen as a as a franchise and so um it came around a little while later, and uh, not many people paid attention to it. But I think it's the kind of movie that can ab- will can, and I think likely will get even more of a following as the years go on. You know, it seems like the the kind of thing that people are gonna are gonna realize exists if they haven't started realizing already. And um, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna make more of a name for itself. You know?
0: Yeah, totally. And before we from the vibe that i'm getting before we sing this movie's praises because i thought it was fantastic and it sounds like you thought it had a lot of good things going on too we may as well well tables have turned folks podcast is over sorry everybody we we have to agree or else we can't do a show (laughs) um we may as well set up you know what the actual plot of this movie is uh just a quick rundown for folks who uh feel like you know just a quick rundown it's for folks That's fine. End of sentence. (laughs) Um, So our protagonist is Lieutenant William Kinderman, who is a character from the first movie that you were just now telling me is a more of a bit part.
1: Yeah, yeah. um, I don't remember him in the movie at all. And um, from what I've read on The Exorcist 3's Wikipedia page, uh, he's not around too much now.
0: Yeah, so to give a sort of much briefer synopsis, Uh, As we'll get into it later, Uh, he is in the process of investigating a series of grisly potentially related murders, uh, beginning with the murder of a 12-year-old boy and then some priests and other folks, all of whom have uh, a name starting with K somewhere in their first, middle, last name. And they're all very violent and grisly and religiously tinged and... um it's reminiscent of a series of killings by a serial killer called the Gemini killer who in this movie is played by Brad Dourif and um, Kinderman in, uh, goes through and investigates these killings as, as things come up and it ends up focusing a lot on this hospital where uh, his, uh, his friend, a priest himself, uh father Dyer um, is placed and is subsequently killed within as one of these killings. And then, uh, it becomes a focal point because in the psychiatric ward, someone claiming to be that killer um who arrived with amnesia is uh sitting there um and the bo- the individual appears to be Father Damien Carris who in the first exorcist film, uh if I understand correctly, you know, completes the exorcism, gets the demon out of Reagan's body and then kills himself as a means to sort of, stop uh the possessions from going on and uh it's about lieutenant kinderman sort of working through this and trying to get to the bottom of how uh seemingly this possessed personality is able to uh commit these uh crimes and you know with that sort of established we'll naturally get into the detail because i think there's a lot of really interesting details and decisions in this movie to dig into but i'll just start with um you know, when you're looking back on the movie, what's the stuff that jumps out at you? And how would you kind of summarize your thoughts on how the, on how you enjoyed the movie or didn't enjoy the movie?
1: Well, you know what uh, jumps out at me the most is um, surprisingly not the horror stuff. And I think there's a lot of great horror stuff in this movie. But what really roped me into this movie was the... Um, the crime drama and mm-hmm. the detective the detective story there's a lot of great great dialogue as um <sighs> yes. as george c scott's uh kinderman is yes. that right yeah that's right there's a lot of great dialogue as uh, george c scott's kinderman is talking um to these you know these other cops and um In in some cases, he's mental patients and he's just he's such an empathetic guy and he's so good at his job. And I just loved seeing this um, 70 some year old actor just totally take command of a movie you know he's totally leading this thing um he's the heart of the movie and he's doing so good he's putting his all into it and um the writing i just thought was particularly great there's a lot of really cool dialogue that just ropes you in in that in the sort of um uh I'm gonna say an Aaron Sorkin way, just because I I, I think when I think of Aaron Sorkin, I think of these exchanges where it's just every call and response is just as meaningful. Um, it's not quite as rapid fire in this movie as it is in in something like The Social Network, but but it's just as engaging. You right, it's two people sitting across from each other and just talking, and and you're so invested in, in what they have to say, and so, you know, for the first half of this movie, it's just Kinderman, um trying to to get on this killer's trail and figure out what's what's going on and and when he reaches the conclusion you know half an hour in where he's two different people committed these murders and he's he's putting all these pieces together I was just I was right there with him and it made the horror stuff hit so much harder mm-hmm. um but but I was so roped in from the from the very beginning
0: yeah for sure uh, I'm glad that's what you said because my big one of my biggest takeaways too <clears throat> sorry one of my biggest takeaways was uh dialogue it's it's impeccable it reminds me almost of a lot of the sort of noirs and detective movies that you'd get in the 50s where it's a lot of really like witty fast talking back mm-hmm. and forth that are really snappy and really sort of yeah immediate. that's a better comparison yeah. and uh, well uh what came to mind for me was sweet smell of success which isn't necessarily a perfect parallel but just when i think of that movie i think of really well-constructed snappy clever dialogue and this is something that the exorcist 3 has in spades um i was thinking about the movie in terms of dialogue and writing performances structure everything and i think the word that i came down with is the word that defines the movie is delivery i think delivery i think that the reason this movie works is that it nails it's delivery. And I mean that in a lot of different ways. I think as you've established with George C. Scott and his really, really fucking great performance in this movie, um, it's about delivering lines and delivering your character to an audience in a way that is compelling and gripping and able to keep people on the edge of their seats because he's a very, he's exhausted and he's strung out and he's tired, but he's still so committed and so energetic and so empathetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a great comparison. I also think um, Brad Dourif is another example of an absolutely incredible, incredible, incredible. phenomenal performance, you know, sw- switching through voices and modes and almost varying degrees of possession. It seems it's yeah, like and none of
1: it, none of it felt cheesy to me either none of those vocal transformations it's it's amazing yeah keep going so okay
0: yeah yeah yeah. so anyway those interrogation scenes are absolutely phenomenal and i'm sure we'll get to that um but i think the biggest thing with delivery that really ties the thing together is i think especially now with you know nearly 30 years of hindsight on this movie itself um I think it's easy to take uh, – so this horror, a lot of it's rooted naturally in religious iconography and battles between, like, good and evil, heaven and hell, the devil, Christ, these things. And I think it's really easy for that to feel corny. Um, it's very well-tread ground, and, you know, the symbols they're dealing with are so iconic, it would be easy – To just kind of roll your eyes but the thing that this movie carries off without a hitch and the thing that really elevates it is that you are never rolling your eyes at it you're never not locked into what they've established and you're never not taking it seriously i think this movie's greatest asset is that despite having things in it that may be silly in a different movie executed differently everything from the way things are shot and edited lit performed Everything ties together to make you believe it and take it on its own terms, which are, you know, grisly and serious and worth taking seriously. And that's probably the greatest thing for me. And it starts right at the beginning in the opening credits, which are profoundly provocative. It really just hits you right away. It starts with the rowing, um, the rowing team, but yep. it like hard cuts and it's Georgetown and it's nighttime and it's foggy. And you have a POV shot walking along this sidewalk. There's that boy with a rose. um, And, you know, you get a POV shot of just tumbling down the stairs and it's loud. And there's been this booming whisper in your ears and just everything is so immediate and raw. And it just it it pulls no punches with that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it it feels immediately like the movie is taking itself as seriously as I imagine the first one did. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a third movie in a series. It doesn't even feel like a sequel. It Mm-mm. just. It feels totally like you could tell me this was the original, and I would believe you. Yeah, even the, the way the movie even the stands way it on says, its own
0: completely. Yeah, like even, even you the way don't have says, to know who these characters are at all.
1: Totally, totally. And and above the title, right, it says William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. And, and in the O, you can see the Roman numerals for three. But it just, it feels so official and it feels... Um, it feels like it just it needs to exist, and it's just. And then he goes on to prove himself throughout the rest of the movie. So whereas you know, the, seeing his name above the title could have felt a bit pretentious, like like Stephen King, like appearing in a trailer and being yeah. like, "If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself." William Max, Peter Blatty wrote override.
0: wrote the script, wrote the book, directed the movie.
1: Like, dude, yeah. relax. And, he, and then he, and then he and then he pulled it off, right? He pulled it off, and it's just. It's just—it's a phenomenal effort. Like I was second I was, movie man, second movie. Yeah,
0: what? Uh, his directorial debut was another thing that he wrote called "The Ninth Configuration." It was a decade earlier than that.
1: Dude and took he didn't do anything ten, after dude this, took right?
0: Ten years off. He kept uh, movies would get adapted, or maybe he was credited on screenplays, but he never directed again.
1: And the directing in this is is phenomenal. There, there are some sequences I want to point out that are just. It all comes down to the directing, and it's um, this movie he, doesn't he knows work how without, to make a movie, dude. Without
0: that, um, so I guess yeah, we may as well start at the beginning. I was almost thinking that this might be one that's easier to look at in vignettes, but I think if we follow a chronological thing, we'll we'll still get where we're going. Um, I think the thing that I want to start with isn't the precise beginning of the movie, but it's the way our two initial main characters are set up, which is Kinderman and, uh, father Dyer. Um, because you immediately get a sense of who these people are. Uh, Kinderman is like screaming in his office, angry at his like co policeman uh, for not taking the job of investigating the murder of this youth seriously enough. And, uh, Dyer leaves from, you know, working with an altar boy and sort of handling, uh, a sermon because they both recognize that on the anniversary of father uh caris's death uh, they each understand it that they go cheer up the other one by seeing the movie it's a wonderful life they both think yeah. that they are the one doing the other a solid and that was such a beautiful way to establish who these people are while giving them their own quirks and traits but setting them up as like you said earlier just deeply <laughs> empathetic like yeah,
1: yeah yeah seen it thirty seven times and he goes that's uh, commendable. Yeah You have yeah, a favorite the, flick, yeah. The
0: Fly. Yeah. Oh, it's perfect. Um, and yeah man. And there's afterwards they go out for lunch or whatever and you know they start with a bit of like a like a theological conversation and again you want to roll your eyes because it's like why would a, uh Kinderman is discussing like oh why would a god that is just and loving create something like death but then, i was
1: just looking at the same line man. but then they just down.
0: have like a really heartfelt discussion yeah but it's still snappy like it, you're still in it for its rhythm and its presentation but it just works i don't know how else to describe some of these things other than just saying it works
1: yeah and it's it's really impressive because um I figure he's a great writer of novels. I haven't read any of his books, but but the fact that he's a very acclaimed novelist and he kept writing books after after the movies, right? Like it almost feels like directing movies was like a quick side gig, right? And he's a novelist. And so we get that we we know he's good, but it's difficult to adapt your novel to um other way actually screen. that's what's
0: weird. He wrote a script. Right, right. You said he wrote wrote a script and he wanted Friedkin to come back and direct it. Friedkin bounced. He adapted it into a novel and then made the movie himself.
1: (laughs) I, I guess, yeah, that's crazy. I guess what I'm saying is that when you're used to writing novels, it's so impressive to me that you can write screen dialogue that is this investing and doesn't feel it's it's not bogged down by anything right like it's it feels like it's made for the screen and it's, and it's perfectly it's just... structured um yeah basically
0: everything you will deal with in this movie between characters themes iconography is set up and paid off every single mm-hmm. thing like clockwork is set up and paid off it's incredible it's a completely bulletproof script like it's remarkable. And I, I almost forgot because in terms of setting things up, you know, in that opening credits, which I said was so provocative. Speaking of ridiculous, uh, it's shooting around a church and it's getting these high angle shots, low angle shots of crucifixes and statues and all these things. And then the doors just blow the fuck open and all this wind and like sound comes streaming through the doors and like debris in a stray newspaper and all this. And it's just like, oh. Oh, we're here! Like mm-hmm. we are in this movie. Um, I d- I don't want to jump around too much, but I want to make sure I said that because it's a phenomenal opening. And um. So. Wow. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to get to. So after they deal with this initial death, there is later we see. Is it is the confessional murder second or third? It's second
1: second after the the opening death yes
0: it's the opening death and then the confession and then the hospital yes
1: Yes, so yeah so the confession is what i would consider the first horror sequence of the film
0: certainly um do you want to describe it
1: yeah so um so we we have a priest sitting in confessional and he's talking to this woman and, and she says um uh what do we need to confess to all our sins? Is that is that how it goes, Corey?
0: Yeah, she's like she's saying that she is compelled to confess like every little mistake that she makes, and that it's an overwhelming burden of stress. Right, and right, And the priest like, says, yeah, yeah. you know,
1: Jesus is gonna forgive you. I'm a priest. This is what I say. I will listen to you. Mm-hmm. And then, and then she says, oh, and you don't see her when she's saying this. No, this is cre- a, this is
0: an embodied voice, an unembodied voice.
1: Yeah, her creepy old lady voice says that she killed someone. She slit someone's throat oh, it's and, there was, and there is and there is blood everywhere and it just her voice is Wait, just like it's itching. She goes, yeah. "I have 17
0: things to confess."
1: Ugh, um, they're pretty yeah.
0: straightforward. Here's the first yeah. one. "I slit someone's throat and it bled everywhere, but I'm working on it." And he's like Ugh
1: what <laughs> dude I, I am curling up right now oh i can feel her okay yeah so he yeah he goes what what's he's what's going on here and then and then we hear the crying of a woman right. and we cut we cut to this woman crying right. and we see her she's just she's absolutely hysterical and that gets us out of the the tension of um of this confession booth and then we get a lingering shot of blood Um, seeping out from underneath the door and then in the scene immediately after we have the police investigating the church and is then that we see blood spatters all over the wall a super grisly scene and this is like i said the first horror sequence i think there's there's some unsettling stuff in the opening but but this is the first horror sequence of the movie 15 minutes in and it feels just perfectly restrained right like you mm-hmm. still yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 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 not a, a a death where it's um okay status quo 15 minutes into a horror movie we need to keep people invested by having a death it doesn't feel that way at all because it doesn't release any tension it just it it, it digs into you and and it makes you so much more into the story it doesn't there's no release of any any sort of suspense or tension it's just it only amplifies things which i think is what you know great horror is supposed to do and um it's truly incredible what did you think of the scene
0: the movie's very patient um yeah and i think that's a great asset for it to have um this is a great example it's patient and it's restrained and it knows that the tension built by patience is far more gratifying for the audience than the spectacle of making this a bloodbath. Um, and I think one of the ways that the movie sort of keeps you in that is something that you've alluded to and something that it does several times, which is that it will hard cut between scenes that feel very different tonally and sort of keep you invested. I, I was scouring my notes for a specific example. Unfortunately, I, i wasn't too specific with that um but i know that like in my mind i can picture a lot of moments and i think this is one of them where you have again the sort of screaming uh crying woman who we notice later is like the person who discovered what had happened here and uh it hard cuts to um you know george c scott is there and his assistant is sort of like further back in the frame and there's a body the body's on a cart and this is something he does several times that repeats uh with each of these every time he sees a body this is what he does and this is another thing where the movie is so restrained is um he'll walk up and he'll take the sheet and he'll lift half of it and he'll kind of inspect it and then he'll put it down and he'll walk around the other side and he'll lift up the sheet and he'll just kind of inspect it and he'll just sort of sigh and look sad and deflated um And then you'll get a quiet moment like that and then it will hard cut to something else. And I think that the hard cuts and the slowness compensate for whatever might be gained by going all out right away because it lets things build. Uh, Not just in terms of when's the next death, but what do these things mean? Because even outside Mm. of that, it's not afraid to give you some strange iconography to keep you on your toes one of the most uncanny visuals in this movie for me uh is a crucifix that opens its eyes
1: yeah absolutely I forget doesn't, when that doesn't look cheesy at all does no.
0: It? it no it like it it's as if Like Christ himself
1: is in I think it's early, man. It might even be when the papers blow into the church.
0: I think it is. But, and there are moments where there's like, there's a crucifix that cries blood at one point. And again, you'd think this is like Uh. haunted house corny bullshit. And it is. But when you execute it this well, it stops being that. And it becomes something else. And when you contextualize it in this gritty crime story it stops being corny and it becomes something else and I, it's 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 just it's remarkable uh, yeah dude
1: William Peter Blatty is an expert delivery man it's honestly
0: like uh, deliver my packages dude you'd probably get them here on time uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he's dead man you can't say that
0: dude if, if this movie taught me anything is that plenty of stuff can happen from beyond the grave <laughs> um (laughs) uh so i think the next point that we can move to we may as well fast forward to father dyer in the hospital i think that's a good place to to transition to um so father dyer is in he's got a bit of a cough it would seem and he's in for some checkups and and again in another really sweet moment uh kinderman visits him with like a plush penguin and uh some food from a restaurant and they go in and they have like another whip crack conversation where it's like oh don't worry my brother had a cough and it's like your brother died at age 30 oh well he was in vietnam it's like <laughs> it's it's this yeah. really strange conversation but it's so gripping and then directly oh wait am i missing when does kinderman have Fabio? That, yeah when does he have? <laughs> yeah when does that dream happen
1: it ha- it happens um immediately before what you're talking Okay about right so now. i
0: need to say that so there's moments in this movie where we cut to some kind of dream sequence or vision um or whatever it may be th- possession who knows and we cut to heaven's waiting room is my best guess and there's a big ticker board with departures and locations and timings like an airport or a train station would have and there's angels and there's victims and george c scott is sort of walking through this place and he sees the boy that got killed and they sort of chat briefly that they miss each other and he's seeing strangers and familiar faces he sees father dyer there as a victim to these uh these killings with the decapitation and things like that and there's people on a radio trying to contact Earth. There's, like, a 1930s jazz band. Uh, and there's a Fabio cameo in this scene, just as an angel, just kind of there. And it's it's strange, and it's another thing that I think in a worse movie, it would be bad. But here, you don't even think twice about it. You're just like, oh, okay, here's these people.
1: And you mm-hmm. kind of literally... Yeah.
0: I, I didn't I go, hey, that's Fabio. Like, later I was like, oh, shit, that was Fabio. Uh,
1: okay, I, I had a different reaction to this one. I, um, I'm i a big fan of Dude, Where's My Car? Where Fabio has a, a oh, very I haven't important seen that. scene. Yeah. So he's kind of a joke to me. And so I did see him and I was like immediately... Whoa, Fabio is an angel. That's obviously Fabio. So it does date the film a bit, okay. but I can understand why they picked him because he's a, he's a beautiful man, and it was 1990. So I, I don't know how That's much. of has got Fabio, right?
0: basically. Yeah. So like, I think this
1: was before he got hit in the face with the. Bird <laughs> <laughs> so like, you could just put him in movies. He was he was an actor, right? So yeah. like, he's so a good looking guy. I love guy, that so.
0: that man. I can't believe that man got hit in the face with a burner roller coaster. <laughs>
1: yeah um, uh so no, it doesn't take away from the movie at all it is to me it's like a bit of uh it's a bit discongruent with like how how into the movie i was sure but it's okay. not the movie's fault
0: yeah and um i want to uh kinder <laughs> i want to get through the chronology now so *Kinderman*. no it's, it's cool.
1: cool i, I just want to i mean we i want to talk about everything in this wanna movie ta- so ta- i, I wanna, think this is I the wanna, best way to do I wanna it i want
0: to get to for, like i want to get to the formal stuff because i think it's really good uh but i want to make sure that everything's like clear <laughs> So, um, Kinderman gets a call, and it is the unfortunate news that Father Dyer had died, or been killed, more accurately. And there's this great high-angle shot of this hospital room, and there's a black sheet covering one of the walls, and there's light streaming in, and there's a sheet covering the body on the bed, and next to the bed is this table, or this tray, that has like, medical jars that you would use for, like, tests or something, and they're all full of this, like, dark red, nearly black liquid. That is, you know, you can figure it's blood, right? And then, um, Kinderman comes in, he's very solemn, and he checks the sheet like he does to check for the marks that are indicative of who the killer might be. And he asks what happened, and the killer had paralyzed him with the same drug that had been used in the previous killings and then systematically drained father Dyer's body of all of its blood, (laughs) which is Uh, crazy. Like that's a wild. It that shook me in a way because um, it's even for like a horror movie kill scene. Which is this is an unorthodox version of because, you know, you don't get the audience satisfaction of like seeing violence, right? It's you, you get yeah. emotional violence done to you. You do not see physical violence. but Same
1: thing with the confession scene. We learn about yeah, it yeah, through yeah. the detective work.
0: And um what we get is just the the methodical systematic nature an individual would need to have to do something like that just really fucks me up in a way. Yeah. Um, And I don't, it's, yeah, man. And, you know, Kinderman starts coming to grips with that. And we get another great shot, again, that's sort of, you know, the frame is stationary. The camera's not moving. And his assistant uh, or coworker, the man with the glasses who kind of looks like Stanley Kubrick, uh, is posted up in the back again. And he's chatting and he's trying to just sort of figure out what's going on. And um, they establish a police presence in this hospital and they're trying to get to the bottom of things and he's trying to get a sense of who in the hospital may have been related to this and he's speaking with a doctor temple uh and he's taken to the psychiatric ward of the hospital and also the isolation ward i guess and um it's in there it's in that ward that he notices there's this sort of Rumbling, growl. I think this is here. Is this here or is it in the middle? There's this throughout the movie. There's like a growling, rumbling, whispering, very sinister possession voice. Um, which for the interest of clarity is meant to be Pazuzu, like the demon from the first movie. That's what the that's what the voice is. Uh and it kind of growls and rumbles its way through recurring motif of statues um that have been decapitated or potentially decapitated uh which is a parallel to the killings that are happening and he's trying to learn more about how exorcism could potentially be used as a means to help here and the priest that he's speaking to um effectively just tells him like sorry you're gonna to have to find this other guy whose name is Father, whose name is Father Morning, uh, who is played by Noel Williamson, who has conducted other exorcisms in the past and is familiar with this kind of thing. And then we get a shot of just Father Morning on his own in this kind of dorm or apartment that he lives in. And there's a little bird on the windowsill, and there's a crucifix on the wall. And he's got this shock white hair despite being a somewhat younger man than like, you know, George C. Scott would be, which is allegedly a side effect from a exorcism that he had conducted. And um, the bird appears to die on the spot and this whipping wind comes shooting through the room and a crucifix falls off the wall and it begins to cry blood. And it's this very ominous kind of setup for what might be happening or rather an ominous warning a foreboding warning for what may come in the future if they pursue this in this way and um then he returns to the precinct and they do a fingerprint check on the uh the woman that he had been speaking to in the mental ward previously uh who is matched via fingerprint (laughs) to the crime scene uh and i want to note that this movie also has cops using a fingerprint computer uh like hellraiser does (laughs) <laughs> uh, which I thought was fun. And um you know, the natural assumption based on what we know about Father Caris or the Gemini Killer whoever it may be is that uh there's a chance that perhaps this woman was possessed to do the killing. Uh though that hasn't been confirmed yet over the course of this movie and then he goes to speak with the doctor that had Guided him through the hospital previously, and we get this great little moment where the doctor is reading a post-it note and practicing what he's going to say before Kinderman comes in. He's practicing his spiel to explain to Kinderman what had happened with seemingly Father Karras, that he had arrived 15 years ago with amnesia, unclear of anything that he was, and had just sort of been held on to, and only recently had he been able to sort of have recollections come back to him, and uh, is claiming now to be the Gemini killer. And so, to get to what is one of the best sequences in the movie, Kinderman goes and he speaks with the patient, Father Karras. And they have... It's this dark room and there's a some kind of medical equipment in the middle and Karras is hooked and chained to this bed sitting upright and there's two windows high on the wall with bright like, shock white light streaming into light, both the men... In the contrast of the darkness of the room. And partway through, it's unclear whether this happens physically or it's a matter of perception for Kinderman, but this movie just yeah. there's a point where, you know, he's discussing the killings and his desire to kill and this um demonic aspect to it. Um, and and insisting he's the Gemini killer, the actor changes to represent the man who was the Gemini killer. And it's this really quick transition where there's been these voice fluctuations in Karis, and it's unclear who's really speaking or what that means. And then it just changes actors completely, Mm -hmm. which is nuts. Like, it's so good. Um, And both of these performances that are being put on by these men... Um, I want to I want to get their names to give them due credit here. Brad Dorff and Jason Miller uh, are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, with a lot of you know voice fluctuation to make it clear of a possession angle and all of these things, and just the sincerity and an emotional height and a commitment that really sends this off. When there are certainly moments where you know in dealing with the religious sort of themes that it is it could risk sounding kind of silly because it's like yeah you're, you know your master is Satan we get it but you know there's no hint of irony or anything in it at all um, what did you think about these sequences you know because there's a few of them in the movie so I think that we should really kind of hammer in on these because there's such clear focal points
1: yeah you know um, Kevin Smith has a movie called Tusk mm-hmm. and um in the third act of the movie there's a scene where Michael Parks who's uh, been in a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies a fantastic actor does about a 10 minute scene opposite Johnny Depp and they're both playing these really extravagant characters that are nothing like themselves they're just really relishing in the fact that they're acting and they're and it's just it's such a it was such a joy for Kevin Smith to put these two people together. He said, you know, Tusk may have gotten panned, but but at least I got get to say that I made this movie so that I could put Michael Parks and Johnny Depp across from each other and just see them act. And I wouldn't be surprised if I heard a similar thing from the director of this movie because it just feels like as good as everything else in this movie is, it feels like this is really where the movie... Relishes um, its content the most, yeah, and the chase
0: are very long.
1: They're very long. Like you could, I don't even. It feels like at at times that Brad Dorif is is yelling at George C. Scott for like an hour. Not not. It doesn't feel overly long. It doesn't feel like I've I'm sitting there like get this over with. But it just feels like you know we've been here for a while, and they're just still going. And I'm not bored, but we're still here. Like this is. Because they're able to, they're able to do that, and if they were to go for an hour, it wouldn't be unjustified. Because it feels like they're able to do that a lot of the time. George C. Scott is just sitting there and and letting this this possessed person speak to him, which is brilliant. Not only for our enjoyment, because we just get to see, um, you know, Brad Dorff monologue. But also because George C. Scott, he is such an empathetic character and he's so determined to just get to the bottom of this investigation. And so there's this possessed person in front of him and, and he's, not, he's not concerned with killing this guy. He's not concerned with finding out one singular you know great mystery of how do we defeat this person or, or something. You know, A lot of times um, when a possessed character exposes himself to a main character in a horror movie they get they get one little bit right where they say this is what i've been planning this is this is what brought me here and now you must pay right and then and then the main character has to take some sort of action but in this case it is it's literally just two characters just and they both feel very human even though they're not but george c scott it feels it just feels like such a grounded scene you know what i mean yeah
0: and there's something and, and they're just oh go ahead yeah go ahead no you, you, okay, go, you sorry go. uh there's something so nice about taking george c scott who is such a phenomenal actor and has been such a presence in this movie and has have, has had outbursts and emotional sort of being at its wits end in all of this and f- making him very quiet and letting the focus be on somebody else is a really clever way so that when he does interject, it feels more meaningful, even if it's not over the top.
1: Um totally, yeah. And I think that also speaks to how all of his passion earlier in the film was not over the top. Because if if George C. Scott, this this great actor who is who's getting up there in age and you know is taking this role in a horror movie you you might think he's doing this so that he can be over the top and so that he can just have a lot of fun with the role and just, it's the George C. Scott show, but it ends up that that's not the movie at all. He, he takes is it very passionate. seriously. But yes, he takes it completely seriously and the character takes this, this scene very seriously and it's just, it totally works, totally.
0: Uh, I actually have a quote from George C. Scott. On this movie and why he came into the role it was the script that brought him in Uh, quote. It's a horror film and much more. It's a real drama intricately crafted with offbeat, interesting characters. And that's what makes it genuinely frightening. And I think a quote like that is something that helps establish both how George C. Scott handles this movie and how this movie considers itself to work, which is that there's a lot of, you know, there are visions and strange abstractions and there's possession and gore and all of these things. But you know, it's being treated with the heart of a drama and with the seriousness that drama entails in lieu of the irony or borderline slapstick that horror sometimes does, especially later in a movie. And I think that it's the way this movie presents and understands itself and how the creative team behind it presents and understands it that is really what carries it off.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So
0: after that initial conversation that sort of sets up how this works, um, Kinderman goes and speaks again with a nurse character that we've seen a few times who I just want to point out because her performance is impeccable. Uh, and she's played by Nancy fish. Uh, here she's seen wrapping up his hand because during their altercation previously, uh, George C. Scott, like backhands, uh, the Gemini killer and breaks his nose. Um, and they, I want to point her out because she takes as seriously the circumstances before them as she does, like, the sanctity of the hospital as a space for people who need it. And they have a lot of, again, really compelling, interesting dialogue, and I think her performance is really great. But once they're done discussing it, he goes to a church library and finds a book and studies up on the last rite um, – excuse me, the <laughs> exorcism rites, um, and in there – there is a point where he is reading in his home and he's talking about how Christ, like Jesus Christ, has an interaction with uh folks who are called the Legion, uh, because they are many, not few. And there's a moment where that's like this subtitle of the film that is not actually used, but that's the name of the book and things, so I just like that little note. Um, but meanwhile, there's been controls happening on the hospital on all the floors and it cuts back to the hospital while he's sort of recognizing how these exorcists set up works. And we have a hallway um, and you can see a reception area and there's a cop doing rounds. And there's a nurse that we see earlier in the movie because she visits Father Dyer uh, by accident with like a medication tray. Um, and there's like a nice sort of comedic scene. But here we have a static camera and just movement in the frame in various points because she's hearing crackling and snapping sounds and growling and all these mysterious things. And there's a door cracked open and she's moving around very scared, very cautiously, very pensively, uh, and enters one of the, Patients' rooms, and there's nobody. There's a man in there who's just like pissed off that he's been woken up. She's like, Oh, it's just, it's nothing, it's whatever. She chats briefly with a police officer, and almost this whole time, except for cutting into the room, the camera's not moving. It's just people moving within the frame, which I just think looks fantastic. But she's continuing to be stressed and concerned in hearing these noises, and she enters, she unlocks and enters a room. And you can't see anything inside and she comes back out. And then very suddenly there's a snap zoom forward and there's this white figure chasing her with the shears that we know have been used for previous decapitations. And the scene, again, it's so slow and it's so careful and it's so patient and it doesn't show you anything. But it's so effective. And it's another example of this movie knowing what to do with this camera. It's another example of the movie knowing what to do with framing and lighting and patience and pacing and everything. And it's another great sequence afterwards where we get a shot that's beautifully lit. The room is bright with a bright light. And then the hallway somewhat dark. And this is another moment where the assistant sort of in the background, George C. Scott is in the foreground and they're just sort of examining this new case. And it's just, I want you to talk about that scene a bit, if you have anything to say, because it's just such an iconic moment.
1: The, the when, nurse, the nurse, yeah that's uh that's my favorite scene in the film um immediately when I saw it I thought well a- after I got over the the, sh- the audible gasp um, I thought to myself that is the scene that I had in my head that I heard that this movie has some sort of scare in it some sort of scene that sticks with people and I immediately knew that was it because it is truly um, one of the most tense. Uh, five minutes of a horror film I've ever seen in my life. And I think the payoff is is done so beautifully because I know that this nurse is going to get got, but I don't know how it's going to happen. And when um, this male patient pops up on her and says, you know, yells at her, why can't I get any sleep? And she screams so loud. It, it works as a great jump scare. I jumped hard and I couldn't even tell if there was like a sound effect or not, or if it was just her piercing scream it's so loud and it's such a you know it's it's supposed to take the tension away away it's a false scare um but because there's no sound effect there it also feels very earned and then she leaves and we see these security guards in the back they're kind of mingling around and going about their business and they leave that gives us they leave and then then they're set up to be there and then they leave and they leave and then and then one of them comes back and then he leaves again. And so my eyes are fixed on these security guards. When, when other people are in the frame, I'm thinking, okay, I guess I guess we're fine. Oh, no, no, they're gone. No, come back. Something... Oh, okay, he's back. Okay. Oh, wait, no, he's gone again. Oh, and she's going into this room. But then there's nothing in the room. And then she locks the door behind her. And locking a door is a good sound. She's saving herself. And we just hear her keys. And, and, and as she's matter. locking the door... if he, And then it doesn't matter because it does white figure doesn't even come out of a room. It just darts out of a corner, and it's such a... I can't even... I didn't even wasn't able to make sense of what I was seeing. It's just this figure that just darts across the room and it's um, it kind of is in a fixed position and its legs just sweep it across the frame. And there's something so scary about the fact that she doesn't jump. She doesn't notice, dude. It just follows oh, her yeah. across the hallway. And then, and then we get a quick cut to a decapitated statue and we know exactly what's happened. And, Um, the sound effect as the camera does that quick zoom in, which, um, was used in a similar way in a movie, uh, the sequel to the strangers did a very similar thing where it was, it was a wide shot and then, um, the bad guy darts into the frame and the camera very quickly zooms in and it, and it was a sequence that was praised, um, as one of the best horror sequences of the year by a lot of people I talked to, um, just regardless of the film, they said this, this scene was a masterclass in horror filmmaking. And I think that exact same thing about this scene, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the strangers took inspiration from this oh, because I feel it, like- it is truly it's, it's one, it's one of the, the best uh, horror scenes I can, I can think of. Honestly, I love, love this scene.
0: Yeah. It's phenomenal use of a snap zoom and like a borderline jump cut, uh, excuse me, a borderline jump scare. Uh, but that doesn't feel that way and again it's literally a figure in a white sheet holding big shears it shouldn't work like that's preposterous and it just works and it's the moment that really sends the movie into hyperdrive not in terms of pace necessarily but this is where the movie ramps toward its climax there's another extended conversation with the gemini killer that goes for 11 minutes I think and wow. they're they're back in this cell and the light streaming in it's beautifully presented and they just have another like long drawn out you know theological historical whatever they just discuss details about themselves and past murders and what's going on here and what the circumstances are. And it's worth noting pre- that previously their original conversation set up that that nurse would be murdered. Her name has a K in it. It's set. Ah, at the absolutely. End. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, so
1: every time we're seeing her, we know she's going to go. We yeah. just don't and know. And she how was set up uh, earlier in
0: the movie, which again is the perfect example of how this movie's structure is just flawless. And yeah, um totally. So at the end of this conversation, it's implied that, you know, the demon here is going to start going after his family and George C. Scott gets really paranoid and starts trying to figure this out. Like, how's this going to work? And there is a drawn out chase back to the house to try to save like his daughter and wife, uh, where a nurse or excuse me, one of the patients has common oh. a nurse's outfit and has been possessed as we've established previous patients had for the other murders and has been driven over to the house and just invited in. And there's this great – this is the point finally after an hour and a half where the movie takes its leap and you start to see the supernatural in action. And actually Mm -hmm. before this – I can't believe I almost forgot this. Before this, we see a woman climb on the ceiling. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that gave me an audible, holy shit, yeah, fuck, so was there's, my so, response.
0: So, yeah, after this conversation happens, the movie, again, it finally commits. But it's worth noting that it's, it's committing from the moment that Nurse's outfit is taken because George C. Scott knows some shit is up. And he's going around this room and uh, examining things. And you get this fantastic low-angle shot. And above him is just this woman crawling on the ceiling and it pulls out to a wide. And it's almost as if she is sped up. Like the footage is sped up because she's moving in really un- unreal ways. And then it cuts in, she's walking out in this uniform and he, and he uh, has to give chase. And then finally we have a confrontation where he attempts to make a move and there's a fellow officer with him and he just gets whacked and thrown into this wall and, uh, and begins being like choked and fought and um, it's in this moment where Father Morning arrives at the hospital to begin an exorcism on Father Karras and that sort of stops the assault from happening and then there's a really incredible exorcism sequence but before we talk about it I want you to know that that was not originally in the movie <sighs>
1: Yeah, The exorcism um, was
0: not in the movie at all. The production company told Blatty that he had to go back and shoot a new ending and that character of Father Morning was added earlier to the movie just to make the climax work and it cost $4 million to shoot the new ending. Wow. It's (sighs) phenomenal. It's phenomenal because usually when you have to shove something in like that and here, at a point, there's Blatty complains that it's um an unnecessary kind of moment, but he likes the idea of having, like, special effects on it. But it was against his will to want that happening. Originally, it was just Kinderman shooting him, uh, and that was it. But what's remarkable is that normally when there's reshoots, things are feel tacked on. Mm-hmm. This exorcism scene fucking rules. Like, it's... It's like a standoff that they're having. So you have Father Morning on the one side standing where George C. Scott used to sit and um, beginning a casual – like casually an exorcism speaking in a cool voice and he's got the holy water and everything. And gradually things start to sort of take turns for the worse. There's fire and snakes and, you know, he's got the – Father Karras has these like yellow red demon eyes that are reminiscent of what Reagan has when she's possessed and this sickly look. And uh, in a very – in the first legitimate show of genuine gore in this movie, Father Morning gets thrown up onto the ceiling and is sort of peeled off of it, exposing, Uh. like, brain and muscle, and it's this grisly, horrible thing. And George C. Scott arrives in the midst of this exorcism and is similarly thrown up to the wall in a crucifixion pose, and there's visions and people climbing through the floor and – uh the Bible explodes at one point, and there's all this crazy stuff happening. And in the last moments, a, a maimed and grisly Father Morning is able to complete the ritual necessary by re-picking up his crucifix. And there's a cool moment where, in the first moment of clarity that Father Karras has had in 15 years, he pleads for Kinderman to do him the mercy of ending his life. And so he shoots him through, and then... um. You know, they watch the body be buried and that's the end of the movie. And I think what's just so remarkable about that is that the movie knows when to be patient and it knows when to ramp up. And even though it's never like a breakneck pace or anything, it really comes together in these last moments where you get this confrontation and it feels so earned and well-established. Even though Father Morning as a character is light.
1: Yeah, so the only problem that I really had with this film, the only major problem um I'd say is the character of Father Mourning. and I There's I There's enough
0: on the bone.
1: Right, I loved um a lot of the exorcism sequence, um him peeling off the ceiling, uh these these really scary characters coming from the depths. I love his plea to be killed by George C. Scott. Um it's a, i'm such a dick calling him george c scott the whole time i've been Kinderman. doing it too <laughs> yeah um i liked all that but I, I just i have to admit that um the changing between brad dorif and the other character um was when i started to get a bit confused with the movie and questioning who was who and i was like these middle-aged sort of balding dark-haired men all kind of look the same i'm having trouble <laughs> figuring out what's going on and um i liked. i managed not- oh,
0: okay sorry I'm, i don't want to cut you off
1: I man I managed to get invested by the time the exorcist sequence exorcism sequence came on again and I I thought it was very exciting. I didn't think um uh scary damian looked as scary as regan did so I th- right. I thought it was more exciting than than scary at in that case um and I didn't quite I had sort of lost the meaning at that point. Um so that's that's really my only problem is that um
0: I think he Glad just he would agree with you,
1: right? He just he had an overwhelming task in front of him. And I am amazed that he managed to pull it off so well, because I'm not saying I would rather see his original film because I really like having the exorcism sequence at the end of this. Maybe I'm basic, but I think I think it's a great culmination. And I think it does feel so earned very much like something like um the final half hour of Hereditary. Um,
0: yeah. And even, you know, the parallels are there. I think in a lot of ways, but not just with like the, you know, a woman on the ceiling, but I think it's similar in that, you know, you have a very patient movie that knows when to hold them, knows when to fold them kind of thing that then just knows precisely when to go off the rails.
1: Yeah, totally. And so I think that this part of the film would serve even better on a rewatch, um, and when I hear someone like Brad Dorif say what we're left with is a mediocre film, there's a quote of his that says, you know, uh, uh original idea was great. And we're left with something that's a bit mediocre. That is fascinating to me because I have faith in both those guys at this point. And so while I am interested to see the director's cut, which I know Scream Factory has released yeah, yeah, to yeah. the best of I their ability, yeah. um, yeah. And I, I'm certainly interested to see that because I, I have faith in both those guys after after seeing this. Um, I do think what we have here works extremely well, which isn't always the case when studio interference comes in. And I think it just speaks to Blatty's talent that he was able to understand his story enough to still um, to still make this work as well as it does.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think I could have said it better. I agree with a lot of that. I think that... I might have thought the exorcism went over a little bit better um, in the sense that like, I didn't find myself confused or anything at any points. Not that you were like so confused. You didn't know like what the fuck you were looking at, but um, right, right, yeah, I agree with most of what you're saying. I, I would love to watch the Legion, like the director's cut of this. I would love to see if it feels any different. I I mean, you know, naturally it would, but I would be curious to see what the difference feels like is perhaps a better way of putting it. And I do want to say, uh, I keep doing this while we talk about movies, as I forget to talk about this until the end. The music in this movie rules.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. Um, Yeah, it it feels really good. It
0: just feels really good. And again, it's got some instrumentation that could feel corny anywhere but here. It's very, like, almost... It's Halloween-y, but not synthetic at times. It's got, like... Like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun kind of stuff but like Mm it just it just plays itself off so well and it helps build this atmosphere that's set up with great establishing shots and lighting as we've talked about just it's 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 difficult to say anything else other than the whole movie just comes together formally structurally performance wise
1: it's it's just great (laughs) it's that simple Totally. And we and we even the uh the possessed cherry on top of the cake is that we get tubular bells at the beginning. You know that song, Corey? It's the it's the, the exorcist theme song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: recognize it. I sorry, I didn't know that that's what it was called, but I recognized it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's uh, commonly known. I just I used to really love that song. Um, that song, so rips, I, w- I dude. would Hell yeah. I would I would I would burn it on mix CDs from like I would <laughs> download it illegally from LimeWire, and I have a couple mix CDs um, where it's like Nickelback, Three Days Grace, and then it's just Tubular Bells. That's tight. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And- so it was really nice to hear that at the beginning. It makes it feel all the more official, you know.
0: I'm. I was so pleasantly surprised, not that I ever thought it would be terrible, but that it so superseded what even my highest expectations could have been, and that's just such an enriching experience to have. I I, yeah. I could sing this movie's praises for another three hours. We certainly don't need to do that, but uh, I'm so glad that we got to watch this. It's, it's, it's a lot like 2010 for me, like I had said earlier, where you can't help but assume on paper that this is a bad idea. Like 2001 does not need a sequel, The Exorcist does not need a sequel. And yet, if you give filmmakers the room to do that, you can get something exceptional out of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe we should just write off that don't doesn't need a sequel idea, right? Maybe any movie Yeah, maybe can this is
0: proof of concept that du- like, that you can do this.
1: Like I'd rather have more good movies in the world than like less. So and you maybe it's rolling
0: the dice because you know for every exorcist 3 there's an exorcist
1: 2. Yeah, you know what? Well, not in the, there's no exorcist 2 in the uh, 2001 franchise, so you can pull it off. I think this movie is utterly fantastic. I think it's a it's a great 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 horror movie. I think it's a great example of what horror movies can be um and I'm so I'm so, honestly like so honored to have uh have this movie and have it from the author of the book i'm just just so impressed by his talent um i wish we got more movies from this guy because i really think he's fantastic there's there's a photo on his wikipedia page it's his um it's his main photo and it's taken of him in 2009 when he's, he must be about 81 years old i'm gonna look at this Explain this is it. william peter blatty and he's just he's sitting in a chair <laughs> he's sitting in a chair in what might be his study and he just looks so satisfied and um, I think he absolutely has reason to be. I think uh, if you haven't seen this movie, you should check it out, regardless if you've seen the original, regardless if you love the original, regardless if you've seen the sequel and hate it, regardless if you've seen the sequel and love it. I think it's just, I think it's a fantastic film. And... um there are obviously some people out there who who dig it because I had heard some rumblings about it here and there. But I think it is such a good movie that I'm going to make sure I go out there and sing its praises from now on. And I hope that it's a movie that can eventually stand alone as a classic in and of itself. Because I honestly, I do think that this is a, an absolutely classic horror film.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And I want to echo that same thing where, again we're people who are not necessarily attached to the original in the same way that many other people are. This movie stands on its own. You do not need to know in any thorough detail the, the first movie to appreciate this for what it is, both as like a fantastic film and a compelling story. It will get you there regardless of your previous experience. And it's, it's,
1: You're going to start crying. No,
0: I just couldn't think of (laughs) the word I wanted. It's, (laughs) it's, I still can't. (laughs) Fuck. It's a movie that is more than worth giving the time to, to let it. It's a movie that's more than worth giving the time to so you can have this experience. Absolutely. And with that, we have come to the end of another episode of They Made Another One. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at TheyMadeAnother, another all one word on SoundCloud as they made another one and soon to be Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, and other services. We're figuring those out. You can reach us via email at they made another one pod at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, comments, questions, and what your favorite George C. Scott movie is. We'll do our best to respond to anyone who reaches out. Liam, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, you guys can find my film writing, Alter Ego, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow, at Twitter and Letterboxd. The tag is Graham the Mallow.
0: And for now, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Corey Price, M-R-C-O-R-E-Y Price. And we will catch you next time here for more They Made Another One. <laughs>